listening to Right Where You Are Sitting Now. Hi there, welcome to episode 39 of Sitting Now. I'm Kenny Kins. Uh, joining me in the hot seat is uh, a newbie. Um, Hello, I'm Sam Hain. Yeah, sorry we've been away for so long. Um, I've been busy finishing off university and uh, doing all sorts of other things like making a film and stuff. I'll talk about that more in the next episode. But uh, yeah, that's for now, let's, uh, let's cut to an advert break. Eerie Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Listener feedback. Really looking forward to the new episodes, so keep up with your work, guys. Thanks. Interviews. There's so many movies, so many documentaries, even books that come out that have factual information in it that maybe, you know, this is a gradual way of kind of educating the public to understand what's going on. Visit Erie Radio at www.erieradio.com. Excuse me, I've got some information I'd like to share with you. Did you know that 26 billion pickles are packed each year in the U.S.? That's about nine pounds of pickles per person. More than half the cucumbers grown in the U.S. are made into pickles. Hey, pickle boy, let's talk pickles. The Podcast Pickle, that is. The Podcast Pickle is your resource for all the latest and greatest podcasts found in cyberspace with thousands of podcasts listed and more added every day. Here's some of the podcasts that you'll find at podcastpickle.com. <laughs> Geek Foo Action Grip. Beachcast. Speechless. Mad King. This Week in Tech. Warren Town Talk. NASCAR Zone. Shelly the Republican. A Voice from Eden. Jimmy McBean. Five Minutes with Wichita. Cinema Playground. Offbeat. The Logo Factory. The Sandy Warriors. Exit 50. This and That with Jeff and Pat. Thoughts on Psychiatry. Web Hosting Show. Marlene from Berlin. Random Cast. Jazz with Tiger. American Road Trip Show. The Drew M Podcast. The Slam Idol Podcast. Forgotten Tales. The Zencast. XboxStation.net. How to Do Stuff. Now, Pickle has a whole new meaning. PodcastPickle.com, the world's best podcast directory. Okay, and we're back. And on today's show, we're going to be interviewing uh, an author and all-round interesting guy called Timothy Wiley. Um, what can you tell us about Timothy Wiley, Sam? Uh, Timothy Wiley is the author of a book called Love, Sex, Fear, Death, The Inside Story of the Protest Church of Final Judgment, um, which just came out on Feral House a couple of months ago. And he's also one of the founding members of the church and was in it sort of pretty much from the very beginning right to the very end. I thought if we're going to interview someone about the Process Church, we should probably just interview someone from the Process Church. Kind of makes sense. And uh, yeah, so uh, we're going to talk to Timothy today about about the Process Church and actually also about some of his uh, his uh, post Process Church work as well, which I'm quite interested in. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's go into that now, and we'll talk to you. Afterwards. Thank you. 
Timothy Wiley, thanks so much for coming on the show. I uh, really appreciate you giving us some of your time. Could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? I'm English. Uh, I was born uh, in 1940, uh, educated in England, qualified as an architect, and um, then became uh, a kind of co-founder of uh, a community, a spiritual community that started in London in the early 60s called The Process. Uh, and um, I spent 15 years with The Process, left it. In, in about 1977, um, ran a small business in New York uh, of an invention that I had in, uh, put together uh, when I was young for my mother's company, a system of uh, storing um, films and film strips and slides. Hmm. Uh, so that's what I did in New York. Then I had a near-death experience which kind of totally blew my mind and blew me wide open and um, kind of totally changed my life. And I became very, very interested in the fact that this reality that we experience is not the only reality. There are other realities which I experienced in the near-death experience. And um, so I really got involved in that and started studying dolphins and then got involved with extraterrestrial uh, interests and then involved in angelic interests. And uh, the result of that has been four or five books about non-human intelligences. And that kind of brings you up to date. Excellent. Okay, so can you tell, give us a kind of, in a nutshell, a kind of synopsis of what the process church of the final judgment is? Yes, it's very hard to do the nutshell because you need an awful lot of nuts. <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we, we changed um, quite radically over the over the years that it was. First the process, then the process church, and then the foundation. And now uh, it's off in uh, Utah being an animal sanctuary called the Best Friends. It's no longer a religious or spiritual organization. Um, Anyway, uh, yeah, it really, the fundamental basis of it was a psychotherapy uh, that we had evolved, which allowed us to dig really very deeply into our subconscious and our unconscious motivations and understandings, the stuff that we all push down. Now, once we started dealing with that, spiritual information, if you like, or at least spiritual questions start coming up, because you start to, well, you know, why am I really here? You know, who am I? All the old old questions that people have always asked. Um, And so, in a sense, we then became much more of a a psychically um, interested. We were um, developing telepathy. Uh, and um, using uh, our psychism in various uh, quite interesting ways. Um, But anyway, then that moved into a more spiritual area. Uh, But the fundamental, if you like, the fundamental spiritual nugget of the process was the unification of opposites. Hmm. The feeling that unless we unify or have some way of understanding the unity which comes from, you know, this polarized existence we live in, where you know, things are good or bad or whatever. Mm. Um, so the idea of pulling those together, both in our own personalities, but also, uh, you know, in the social sphere in which we were, were living as well. So that was the basis of the, uh, of the process. How do, we, how do we first experience the negative aspects of the self, and then how do we assimilate those negative aspects into a whole personality? 
That's interesting. That's um, as Alistair Crowley uh, famously quoted, the, the great work is the uh, unification of opposites. It was something like that, wasn't it? Yes, it's very, it's very, very fundamental in um, in European mysticism. Actually, in almost all mystical traditions, it's it's uh, you know the, the perennial issue, if you like. Mm. Uh, yes, of course. So, can you tell us a little bit about um, Robert de Grimston, Mary Ann Moore, and like how the actual group kind of began and the kind of roots in Scientology? Uh, yeah, I well, I'd known Robert because we studied architecture together, so I'd known Robert prior to this whole thing by you know four or five years. Uh, he disappeared out of all of our lives at architectural college, and when he came back into my life about two years later, he had been at Scientology for I think about a year and had met Marianne at Scientology, and they had decided they would, um, you know, they could do better than Hubbard. <laughs> uh, and they had all sorts of understandings of how the E-meter really should be working, because really what Hubbard was doing, if you know anything about the E-meter, mm, yeah. is Hubbard was actually uh, creating little Hubbards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> by, pro by programming people to have the same responses he had, they were using it in a very different way. And um, to pull out, to draw out of people, their basic uh, agreements, their basic compulsions. So it's a very different process. Well, so what, um, um, at which point in Scientology's history is this as well? I've always been interested in this because uh, obviously Scientology itself went through uh, various phases as well. Uh, obviously it started off as like Dianetics work groups uh, and then moved into actual Church of Scientology status. Is it what sort of period in Scientology's history are we looking at here as well? I would imagine this would be probably, it was still East Grinstead. I don't think it was. I don't think it was a church yet, actually. Yeah, I think it was I'm not quite sure. I don't know a great deal about their history, but it was probably something like uh, sixty-one, maybe. Mm, that's quite sixty-one, sixty-two. So um, obviously, uh, these guys left Scientology, um, Robert de Grimston and Marianne Moore. But uh, how did they kind of like? I, I guess like I, I believe a community sort of began to evolve out of that uh, union, I suppose. Well, what happened was that they. Um, they they called me up out of the blue and offered um, asked if I would be a guinea pig for them hmm. while they you know uh, perfected their processes with the meter and since I had already uh, been doing some of that sort of work in a local psychological institute to earn some money I would be the guinea pig for you know student psychologists I had a certain sort of affinity with that area so I guess that's why they asked me. Mm. Um, so um, after doing some sessions with them, uh, you know, I became really very enthusiastic about it, and um, I had a lot of friends at that point, um, and uh, a lot of them, you know, got very interested, uh, and then their friends, and um, I think Robert and Marion had one other person, uh, a lawyer that they were working with also in the same way as they were working with me, so some of his friends. So within a year or two, you know, there were 40 or 50 people who were pretty much, um, you know, focused on uh, on, uh, on the work that the process was doing. Okay. It was called compulsions analysis at that point. That was prior to being called the process. So, did the, I mean, did the groups release any kind of um, literature at this point, or was this? Didn't no, it didn't. No, that was, those were early days, and it was all really word of mouth. And there were two um, meetings a week. Um, you know, um, I think probably later ages would have called them encounter groups. But um, Robert and Marianne worked very well together. He was uh, he's very intelligent, um, perhaps a little too rational, and Marianne is very intuitive, and perhaps a little too crazy. <laughs> <laughs>
So can you tell us a little bit about the um, kind of the general social climate in England at the time and, uh, you know, at the time of the actual, I guess, when the uh, group began to become a bit more public? Um, how did the, how did the, uh, how did England, I suppose, it, in this period of time respond to something like the Process Church? Well, firstly, England was in a terrible state at that point. I mean, the 50s were absolutely frightful. Um, you know, we're coming out of the war. Nobody had any money ration, but, you know. And by the 60s, um, the big, early 60s, it was still uh, really very, very drudge-like. And the additional factor, of course, was this damn bomb thing that was hanging over everybody's heads. Hmm. And I think many of us, certainly of my generation, were absolutely convinced that um, you know, war was going to be really quite imminent. And I've only realized recently how, how I never really planned for the future. I, I I hadn't thought that there would ever be a future. Mm. So you know, now I'm in the future. It's kind of curious. Uh, we wouldn't. You know, we, of course, we were never well received. I mean, we were out, absolutely outrageous for a start. Mm. Um, I mean, we we were pushing people's buttons, uh, particularly around responsibility. Uh, you know, and sort of digging in and, and and really sort of getting to the point of trying to get across the fact that every person is entirely responsible for themselves. There are no excuses. There is nobody to blame. Now, that's a very, very harsh uh, criteria to live one's life by, if one can do it. But it is a very, very eye-opening, and it's a very maturing and intelligent way to live, because by taking the power back, by taking responsibility, even for, let's say, an aeroplane wheel dropping on one's head, say, third example, of course, one is responsible for being under it, you know. Now, by taking responsibility for things that happen to you, that appear to happen out of the blue, one actually retains the power. One's, one, one's no longer, you know, rendered powerless by uh, the environment, by events, by governments, by, by policemen, by whatever, you know, because one has the power back. That's not an easy message to get across. And, Although I wasn't present at these two gatherings, Robert did a large lecture at the Oxford Union and one at LSE, and he was roundly booed hmm. and, uh, and harshly rejected by the, the mass of the people there. But of course, every once in a while, there'd be two or three in the audience who would come up and say, hey, yeah, no, this makes a lot of sense. And um, we, were never, we were never into getting large groups of people. We were very elitist in that sense. We, mm. we only wanted people who really could, um, you know, deal with life as we saw it. Mm. So um, how did, uh, I mean, obviously you said you started off as a kind of um, commune, a kind of community. How did you start to become um, a kind of, I guess, a group that existed with a name and, you know, <laughs> how did you sort of turn into the Process Church from uh, being this commune? And where did the name also come from? Because I know, well, I read that there was a few other names in the pipeline before that. Well, you know, when it was compulsions analysis, it was not a community. It wasn't, um, you know, we weren't living communally. All like a study you know, group. Groups, small groups, about three or four people would be living in an apartment here or there. When um, they got Balfour Place, which was a kind of mansion just behind Park Lane, um, it just made more sense for everybody to move in together. It was a you know, six-story building. And, uh, you know, we were getting to a point where we, we all knew each other so well at that point 
that um, it just made uh, logical sense and also a great saving of money um, to all live together. So that's really how we became a commune in that sense. Mm. Um, becoming a community was something a little more complex because um, we really got to a point uh, in about 64 or 65, I think, when we just said, hey, you know, why are we here? Why are we in, in England if they hate us so much? And, you know, we were starting to get, you know, people curious about us and, you know, in a sort of rather unpleasant way. Mm. So um, we went off to, uh, start a, <laughs> to start a new life, to start a new community on an island somewhere. Mm. And uh, so off we went. And it's a, a long story, and I recounted it in my book, The Love Sex a death book hmm. uh, going to Nassau and then going to Mexico and then down to the Yucatan that's really when we became a community Ken hmm. uh, that's when you know the, the, the spirit was really driving us at that point I've always wanted to know how did uh, the Church of Scientology respond to uh, the, the process church um, I, th I think they probably ignored us for a long time <laughs> um, we weren't we, you know, we weren't really on their radar I think they probably had more beef with people like the Hare Krishna and the Moonies because they really were, you know, taking taking the same people. Um, we tend to do, uh, you know, not 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 go in, in precisely those areas. Um, but uh, what happened when the Manson thing broke? Um, Scientology material was found at Spahn Ranch, I guess, fairly well established. Yeah. And what I've been able to um, find out, and I. I I have not seen the press release. I, I, I have to be cautious about that. But what I believed happened was Scientology completely freaked out about that and put out a press release the very next morning or within a day or two of uh, the, the Spahn Ranch being raided and basically accusing the process of being the people behind Manson. Hmm. So that really started a whole uh, you know, very unpleasant series of events. Yeah. Although I think we probably handled it fairly well. Yeah, I can say. <laughs> I'm just going back to what you said. Uh, you you're going to Mexico. One thing that's really grabbed my attention about the Process Church is uh, all the ma the magazines that you released and all the artwork, which I understand you did, which is amazing. Mm. But I heard that there was you, they made some films in Mexico, some sort of promotional films. No. 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 <laughs> okay. No. I think no, was... I mean, uh, we, we, I mean, think of the time, 1965. Mm, uh, yeah. There was no video, you know, maybe 16 millimeter, but nobody, no, nobody had the cameras. Uh, we barely had any food, <laughs> you know. No. Yeah, I think it's, we were asked. We were asked by someone um, online to ask you about that, but but it does. Yeah, when you put it that way, it does actually. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem you to know, make a lot know, more sense, looking doesn't it? at it from where we are now, you know, we oh tape recorders, yeah. No, nothing like that. I think there were a few cam, you know, somebody had a camera because we we have a few photographs of true, but no, nothing moving that I remember. Can I just ask also what like because you did all the magazine covers and what sort of influenced you sort of artistically? That's a very interesting question, and I've been asked that before, and I try to root around for what I might have been influenced by. Hmm. And to tell you the truth, the only thing I can think of really is is um, acid. Um, <laughs> which uh, I had, um, you know, quite an entheogenic history before I uh, joined the process. Now, the process didn't, you know, it was anti-entheogens, anti-drugs uh, of uh, basically any kind. So I had that sort of 15-year break. But I think probably it came from that. 
when I later saw the stuff that was coming out of San Francisco, and I realized, my goodness, you know, that's very, very similar. Yeah, and of yeah. course, it came from the same kind of acid, acid perception. Mm. Uh, so, one thing, I mean, just going again, going back to the kind of me when you moved to Mexico, obviously, that's quite a different um, environment to uh, the UK. So, I was wondering if you could talk about kind of like how being in Mexico affected the community or, you know, built the community. Um, and, you know, it, it must have had some kind of effect i suppose on the group you know being in this completely different yes tremendously bonding i mean it was it was very hard living i mean sleeping out in the open you know with spiders that jump at you and oh. bite you and coral snakes that wrap around your legs and things yeah no it was a it was extremely bonding in a sort of fox, foxhole sort of way <laughs> um the most bonding thing was when the hurricane came because there was a, a major hurricane i think it's called Inez. Um, and it was heading straight for us. The British consul came down and, you know, instructed us to leave, and we said, no, we, we felt that the gods had shown us this place, and we were going to stay, you know, and see what happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, we all meditated like crazy, and um, the hurricane um, shifted. It moved and went along the coast and, and hit Santa Cruz mm -hmm. instead. And... When I was doing research for the book, I pulled up the, the, the map uh, that showed the direction that he has moved. And you can actually see that little jog. <laughs> it was heading straight to the Yucatan Peninsula. You can see it just jogging away a little bit. Well, that's good. <laughs> uh, whether it was our meditation, whether it was our faith, whether it was one of God's jokes, who knows. But it really, I mean, it, it bonded us very closely. When you um, say it, you sort of all meditated a lot, and I'm just really interested, and I'm quite a, yeah, a lot of people I speak to are interested in what sort of like yeah meditation or magic or ritual that the process church did, and did you you had like a mass, and was that similar to something like a Gnostic mass in the OTO or anything? Yeah, I do, I I don't know the um, I don't know the Gnostic mass uh, of the OTO, but I I would imagine it was not dissimilar, put it that way. Hmm. Um, it was, in temperament, it was more like being in an American black church. There was a lot of energy. Uh, the music was, everybody singing, the music was good, very loud. We just actually just made an album uh, of, uh, of the process music, um, the uh, liturgical music. Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, I mean um, th these kind of sound a bit more like, I guess, kind of Christian sermons or compared to uh say an occult ritual i mean was was there any kind of occult influence in the uh, process church or um like western i guess that's uh, a kind of difficult difficult question to answer because one would have to start defining what one meant by occult yeah because um, I mean, maybe the western esoteric tradition or you know stuff like uh, the golden not, dawn not the really no, um we were we were very much Powered by intuition and also Mary Ann's intuition. I mean, she was very much the force behind it all, certainly uh, on that sort of, um, you know, spiritual level, anyway, or psychic level. So, uh, yeah. There was one yeah. place also um, in interested in, um, in in America. In uh, I think it was yeah, some, somewhere in California. There's uh, there was a house called and referred to as a spiral staircase. I hear that members of the process used to hang hang out there and uh, also all kinds of other people um anton levey i hear and and even charles manson and and i've sort of read i'm not sure how true it is but that might that was sort of where charles manson maybe met people from the pro process 
Yeah, um, yeah, no, I, I've uh, actually been asked that one before because I think it once had something going around the net. No, um, to my knowledge, and I would have known. Uh, yeah. I, nothing to do with the spiral staircase. It was in Malibu. You know, we were in L.A. for such a short time. Uh, I doubt very much if Robert and Marianne would have gone without me knowing about it. Um, no. And also, we'd never met Manson. You know, the only time we ever met Nansen was when two of us went to um, interview him in prison. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, what actually would you say uh, changed with the process church over its kind of... um it's long history. I mean, obviously you started off as a community and then you started to become a community that produced literature. And how do you see the, the how, how do you see how the group kind of evolved over the years? How did it, um, you know, how do you see the process church going from this small community to now, uh, uh, what's it called? The, the a kind of animal rescue center, isn't it? So. Best, best friends, yes. I would say disillusionment probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we tried to, um, you know, I'll put it in our terms, right? It sounds arrogant, but I'll put it in our terms. Mm. Right? We tried to you know, help people see the truth. People weren't interested, so screw it. We're going to just help the animals. Mm. You know, that's the kind of long and short of it. <laughs> so, Humanity is the devil. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> <laughs> so, so Robert Grimston. Mm. Um, no, uh, I, I have no doubt that we are in a hellish, on a, living on a hellish planet, whether it's hell or not, I don't know. <laughs> I think we create our own hells and heavens. And one thing I'd like to talk about, because we haven't really kind of covered it, I guess, is really the kind of theolo- theolo- yeah, sorry, the theology of uh, the process church. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about like um, how that kind of evolved, you know, from a, sure. what's essentially a psychological uh, group, as you said before, or kind of, you know, uh, a, an offshoot of Scientology in some ways. <laughs> No, it's certainly not an offshoot of Scientology. Absolutely not. In fact, um, um, you know, they 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 would really uh, they would really object to that, and we mm. would too. No, nothing to do with Scientology. The only thing to do with it was that we used their e-meter for about two or three years, mm. and then we scrapped it because we became so telepathic we could do it without an e-meter. Ah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the theological thing. Yeah, that really emerged out of a psychological theories of understandings that people group themselves and you know i mean the enneagram i think has whatever it is 11 different you know there are different ways of grouping people but we saw that they fell into four basic categories if you like so when we um became a church uh, we had to kind of formalize the religious aspect of it and we'd already been sort of dealing with the idea of okay what is a Jehovian type? Okay, Jehovian type is the authoritarian, hmm. you know, Republican, conservative, uh, you know. Um, uh, anyway, but yeah, you get the picture anyway. That, yeah, that, yeah. That's the Jehovian type. And okay, what's the uh, Luciferian type? Um, much more easygoing, perhaps more creative, more intuitive. Uh, and, you know, on the negative thing, a little more lazy and sloppy and easygoing. Hmm. Right? What would be a satanic type? Well, satanic type would be a fiery, a passionate, um, you know, maybe destructive uh, under certain conditions, you know, revolutionary, rebellious. And what would be a, uh, the Christ type would be, obviously, the unifying, the bringing it all together, the, the, uh, the one that has a, a foot in every camp. Hmm. Um, so these were the kind of the four personalities. No, again, it breaks down 
you know, you could say, well, uh, some people have a Jehovah Satan mix, or some people have a Jehovah Christ mix, or a Jehovah Lucifer. No, I don't think we went. No, I didn't move with that. <laughs> so then they, then they created eight different types of people. Um, to a certain extent, it was kind of, really kind of jammed together as a, as a, as a religion in order to, you know, get the tax breaks you get in America mm. if you're a religion. So uh, I don't feel very tremendously comfortable about it because I never really agreed with it, uh, any of that. Mm. Um, uh, I didn't follow the religious aspect. I was more interested in the unification and the spiritual aspects of it. And then when I had my near-death experience, that was so real compared to the kind of dogma and rubbish that we were talking that it, you know, hmm. it made all the theological stuff that we, we were talking about personally to me rather meaningless. Yeah. Okay. I mean, obviously one thing is kind of unavoidable when you sort of start to research the process church, but there's obviously a lot of controversy around the group and, uh, Obviously, in your latest book, you try and cut through a lot of that <laughs> and kind of clear yeah. things up a little bit. But obviously, I mean, obviously, we'd obviously like to talk to you about it as well, if you don't mind. And uh, there's a, um, so obviously the, the biggest connection you always hear about is Charles Manson um, and the Process Church. And um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and also about, um, yeah, just talk about that, really. I mean, what, what is the connection between, if, if any, between the Process Church and Charles Manson? Well, I think the bottom line is that there's no connection whatsoever. Mm. We never met him, as I say, until we went, to, um, we, we went to interview him. It was unfortunate that he happened to live on the same street in uh, in San Francisco, that we had a chapter. Now, I, d I don't think it was the same time period, and the street called Cole Street is a very long street. Um, I think there's something, a rumor going around that somebody saw Manson's bus parked outside our chapter. Now, if you ever lived in San Francisco, you know what the parking is like there. <laughs> if you can find a parking place anywhere. And, you know, it's kind of easy to point out that if Manson had come to visit the process and had been able to park his van in front of the bus when he was visiting, then he probably had some pretty hot mojo going mm. because uh, it's very hard to park anywhere in San Francisco. <laughs> anyway, so that was that. Was that. Um, do we were in L.A., I think, three years before uh, he was, or anything happened there, you know, the Manson murders there. Um, it was really, I have to say, basically the Scientology that did it, that put, mm. the, uh, you know, put yeah. the finger on us. Charles Manson is definitely a very, very interesting character. But, I mean, what was the... Re I mean, who sort of decided within the church to say, oh, we, we're going to go and interview him for our magazine and what was the reason behind what is it we were doing a magazine on death and as i said earlier we like to represent extremes yeah yeah and so we thought well who would know more about extremes of death than charlie manson yeah and so we, we went to interview him and we set him against if you remember malcolm muggeridge yeah. who in the 50s and 60s was a Catholic convert and, um, you know, a very, very sort of hot uh, Catholic Christian. And, you know, no, nobody comments on that. No, <laughs> yeah. comments on the Manson. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was, it was stupid on one level. Um, the book, The Family, hadn't come out by that time. 
came out, I think, in 71. Uh, so, uh, you know, it just seemed to us a good idea. Why not? You know? yeah. And we were, you know, we thought of ourselves as very cool. You know, I mean, I remember going and spending some time with that Lincoln Rockwell, the American Nazi person. You know, not because I liked him, or just simply because he was an extreme personality. Risky. One thing I actually really want to go back to very quickly um, is the, the the magazines all seem to have very definite themes to them. Um, yeah. Uh, wh- why did you decide to uh, bring out a magazine like that, where you know you, you'd have uh, you know very, like you say, very extreme kind of uh, uh, points of view, in, and they often seem to conflict with each other in some ways. <laughs> from the ones well, I've managed well, of to course. read, I mean, that, that's the whole issue about uniting yeah. the opposite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the theme came basically, um, certainly a because other magazines were doing themes. Like that Parabola magazine which I think wasn't around then, mm. had been doing themes now for years. Um, but because we had this fundamental uh, concept of uni- unification of opposites, it was particularly compatible with that sort of, um, you know, it's a very good way about putting that theme because you can get, well, let's take the Manson and Muggeridge example, you know, you can get these very different views uh, which you know, people aren't trying to reconcile. We were just saying, okay, here are the views. Hmm. You know, you make of it what you will. Yeah. We weren't going to do the work for them. <laughs> now, obviously, the um, the second, um, uh, I guess, controversial figure that often gets bandied together with the process church is uh, the son of Sam, uh, son of Sam killer. Um, could you talk a little bit about why that happened? Why is there uh, some kind of connection or alleged collection connection rather i should say between son of, the son of sam killer and the process church yeah the connection is um uh german shepherds mm. and a gentleman called maury terry uh who's one of these um bottom feeder writers uh and he just got it into his head because he you know the process had broken up by that time uh, so he probably thought he could just, you know, juggle things around. We had German Shepherds, and somehow German Shepherds were involved in the Southern Sam thing. I don't know how we were out of New York by that time anyway. I think when did the Southern Sam things happen? 78, wasn't like that. Did, didn't the process... Right no, we had no connection with it. it was just, you know, hmm. Didn't the pro- process church sue? Um, was it? Did they sue him for over over that... Book or was it a different book? I can't yeah, remember. Um, when the family came out, uh, uh, the American um, version had a chapter basically vilifying the process and you know calling us uh, cannibals and uh, murderers and goodness knows what. It was truly a frightful piece of work in order to bolster his theory that the process was behind Manson. Right, so he had to make us even worse than Manson. So yes, we didn't sue him. What we did is we, um, I, I can't remember the American uh, legal terms, but anyway, we got that chapter removed from the English, uh, from the American version of it. But when they published the book in England, of course, it was a different matter because we had a very conservative judge. We were very stupid by that time. Um, Robert and Marianne decided not to represent themselves, not to, uh, you know, but to have, you know. Um, some of my colleagues represent them, of course, it's a terrible mistake. So we lost that case. Mm. And in the English version of it, they put the chapter back in. Okay. So that's basically what happened. Um, there's another another name that you, you refer to in your book as this character being dark. And his name um, has also comes up in sort of 
all kinds of conspiracy type circles. But that's Tommy. Is it Tommy Baumler? <laughs> Tommy Baumler, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I, I, I really um, have nothing much. We were looking for a lawyer. Uh, Tommy was the person who came. We used to, uh, you know, to make us into a church. Uh, he was a bit of flamboyant character, and I think a lot of the very, uh, uh, you know, flamboyant wording of uh, the process, um, all that sort of contractual stuff, uh, was very much up to him. He was, he was thrilled by the whole thing. Didn't he re- recommend the name of the church? Was um, I can't remember what it was. It the Church of was, Christ it, it, and Satan. Church of Christ and Satan, I yeah. think, was the thing that appealed to him, but it was a little too in your face yeah. for us. So um, the last person I kind of want to bring up um, in regards to the Praises Church was one we were asked, have you ever heard of a group called The Hand before? And what is there a connection between The Hand and the Process Church? I have no idea what it means. <laughs> no, I haven't either. No. no I, I have no idea. Um, the Hand, is it, is it a group, a cult, a, a way? A, we don't a really know. I asked Timothy about when Rob told Jack to leave... Uh, Stool. Stool and start working for the hand in the north of um in the north of Mexico. No. Um firstly there was no Jack at Stool. Yeah. Secondly, <laughs> Robert wouldn't Robert wouldn't have been in a situation to tell anyone to leave. <laughs> I was the only person that I know who was told to leave. Uh I sat outside for three days uh, before being invited back. Um <laughs> So, uh, no, that that's just a make-up story. And the hand, I don't know, was it Mexican Mafia or something? Ah, no, no. Well. I, I would have known something like that. There's obviously always sort of seems to be re- sort of a resurge of interest mm. in, in the process in sort of the 80s with uh, the Temple of Psychic Youth in Genesis P. Origin, and then in the 90s and sort of now with the Church of Holy Terror, which is sort of a musical kind of thing with bands that are influenced by the philosophies of of the process but i just wondered what what what, why do you think it's sort of carried on being such a popular thing and people get very you know very interested in it particularly yeah a lot of the topi writings is really very heavily influenced by the process yes um i I, i'm actually not aware of some of the stuff that you just uh, talked about in terms of you know the contemporary influences i know genesis was very influenced i think probably um we were we were so we were so certain of ourselves, and we were you know we, we we didn't hide away. You know we were out on the streets. We had long you know our hair down to our waist. We had um, flowing capes and you know Mendes goats around our, our necks and crosses with snakes twined around them. You know and we jump around and sell our magazines. We were, we were very out there in a way that you don't see these days where everybody is so sort of into themselves and, mm. and they're a little scared that, you know, oh, I, I shouldn't say this, I shouldn't say that. You know, we continued to blot our copybook again and again by doing things that we thought were perfectly, you know, perfectly understandable, but they, of course, would be completely misunderstood again and again. I mean, I remember, for instance, giving a talk in a speaker's corner at Hyde Park mm. And, and, you know, talking more volubly and everything until I started smelling smoke. And I realized that somebody lit a fire under my soapbox. And I was just slowly going up in flames. You know? So it's that. <laughs> it's outrageous. <laughs> it was that kind of experience. And many people had those sorts of experiences. Plus, there was an awful lot of magic going on. 
I mean, the fact that there were hurricane dust was really an extraordinary thing. Mm, yeah. uh, then we, we got into telepathy, and, and you know, we were pre pretty damn good at it. Um, we had a coffee house called Satan's Cabin uh, that, uh, you know, a lot of the most interesting people in the 60s used to come to. So I think it was really a sort of a punctuation point in a sort of a rather deteriorating social situation that we've seen over the last 40 or 50 years. It was something exciting. It was vital. It was virile. Hmm. You know, it was, uh, yeah, it was a real challenge. Yeah, it's definitely something. Uh, maybe, I mean, one answer to the question maybe as well. I, I guess it's the group itself were one of, I don't know, I can't think of any modern groups that have kind of thrown themselves into it as much as you guys seem to do. No. Yeah. That, that, that's exactly it, Ken. Yeah. I, I think, you know, there's a certain, you know, I don't know how old you are. You're probably, what, in your 30s? Yeah, I am, yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in their 30s that I've come across doing the book tours have a tremendous interest in this time because they, they weren't there. They want to know about it, you know, because it, it was really unlike the time right now, although it might be rather like a time to come. Mm. <laughs> but um, it was so uh, intense. The, the fear of imminent devastation, mm. you know, as somebody said, you know, it, it sharpens your, your brain when you know you're going to die the next day. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, we really had the juice going. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. And also the aesthetic of the aesthetic of the process is sort of so striking, like the symbology and the idea of sort of dualities of Christ and Satan, and like like your magazine, the artwork for all the magazines is just yeah, really, really powerful, and it's just like really visually sort of I don't know, just stimulating. It's brilliant. That's what really got me interested in it, actually. Oh, thank you so much. You know, the funny thing about it, of course, is, you know, as I'm sure you've done things in the past, and you just do them, you know, you forget about them, and then 30 years later, somebody says, hey, you know, <laughs> these were the start of a psychedelic magazine. <laughs> you know, they say, what? <laughs> yeah, one, another thing, actually, I was going to ask you just before we move on to your more recent um, work is... Um, was Timothy Leary ever involved with the process church? He's someone I'm very interested in. And I was wondering if he ever, did you ever interact with him in any way sort of during that uh, period of time? Well, yes, I did indeed. And um, in my book, I have, you know, really quite an interesting little, I spent three days with him in a, in a wigwam, a teepee up in, um, in Millbrook. And it was uh, in, just before he was busted in California. Yeah. And that kind of led to all his various different escapades. <laughs> uh, but he'd reached a point, it was very interesting, he'd reached a point in his life when he had started to realize that he really screwed up, hmm. that he hadn't been the way to go. As you probably know, there was this big thing between Huxley and Leary, mm, where yeah. Huxley said, for goodness sake, you know, dribble it down from the elite, you know, and... Leary being, you know, being Leary said, no, no, we should, everybody should have it, you know. Hmm. And of course, you know, by 19, whatever it was, uh, you know, by the late 60s, um, we could see kind of the, the damage it was doing because powerful entheogens are not for everybody. No. You know, they can do as much damage as they can do good. And people have to come on, them on their own. You know, a guy of 20, you know, taking, you know, a, you know, 500 micrograms of acid and going to a club and totally freaking out. I mean, that's not what entheogens are for. They're no, spiritual no. tools, for goodness sake. Leary started really to 
get interested in, in what we were doing. And uh, so I took him down to a, um, we had one of our Sabbath assemblers. And unfortunately, that particular day, we, we had, you referred to it earlier, um, we had what we called a revelation. Now, it wasn't a prepared speech, and that was very important. Mm. It was always to come off the top. So, you know, people never knew what they were going to say or, you know. And it, unfortunately, in this particular assembly, in the revelation, was given by a rather ignorant Scottish man. And when he was giving an example, he gave an example using the American president, but he talked about Eisenhower instead of whoever the president was. <laughs> and I looked at Larry and I saw Larry's face drop. Yeah, yeah. And I realized that was it, you know. <laughs> right, <so> <laughs> <laughs> and off he went. I met him many times after that in, in civilian life, but uh, that was it for the process. Mm. <laughs> So, I mean, you said earlier on you had a near-death experience, and this obviously changed the way you um, you thought. You know, it, it changed your work personally, and you know, what you did, and what you've produced since the Process Church. And uh, can you talk a little bit about what happened with this near-death experience, and what it was about the near-death experience that changed you so diff- you know so much? I guess. Yes. Um, well, the first thing about a near-death experience which changes you is the realization that there is more going on here than meets the eye. Mm. Um, I won't go through the, um, the stages of it, but essentially what happened was that I was told that I was dying. Mm. I was shown how I would die uh, if I would continue. I was told that I had accomplished what I had come to do uh, and that I was given, to, given the choice that I could either continue or I could go back. Mm. And when I thought about it, continuing... I could predict in the sense that this was the most wonderful thing that I had ever, ever imagined. I mean, death is just, <laughs> that's why they shave it to the end, you know. Mm. It's, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. Mm. Um, but I didn't know what would happen if I came back. And uh, so I made the choice to come back. And then the whole thing dissolved and there were angels all over the place playing music and boogieing. And then I was taken into a big structure, and uh, a machine came down, and it healed me. And then I was taken to another place and shown it and told I would forget what I'd seen. And then I found myself back in my body healed, and I was uh, all healed. But what blew my mind, of course, was the, uh, you know, it really exists. It really is life after death. Mm. You know, it's, it's not a belief system anymore. It's something I know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, of course, knowing that, A, it completely reduces any fear of death. And fear of death is the basic hole that everybody, you know, that, that every, you know, everybody's in. Hmm. And everything else is a ricochet of the fundamental fear of death. That's, yeah. how they, that's how they control us. So to be convinced of that would actually change your outlook on life generally, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> totally. Yeah. On every level. Because the mundane then becomes, you, you realize, okay, yeah, you know, this is something we have to go through. Uh, there are lessons to be learned here. But it's only part of a very, very, very large story and a very large and long journey. Hmm. And so if you remove that fear of death as well, then it must also, that must be a, a, a useful tool if, uh, amongst many other things. <laughs> yes, it, yes it, it, it is. It, it allows you to swim out into the, the middle of, of uh, uh, the Gulf of Mexico in the hope of having dolphins save you mm. in the middle <laughs> of a storm, and they didn't. 
<laughs> right, I was going to talk to you about dolphins in just a second, but um, one of your works I'm quite interested in is, uh, I think I mispronounced it earlier as well, was the Hel- Hellanics proposition? The Heliac, the Heliac proposition, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about, uh, this is a book, isn't it, that you've actually produced, and could you tell us a little bit about what the Heli- Heli- Helianics proposition is? Please. I will present <laughs> it right one day. Yeah, it was something that actually came through in... Um, the text, what I call the text of it, came through in, a, in, a, in about a, a three-hour, um, I don't know quite what to call it, um, automatic writing, channeling. Mm. It just it didn't stop. It just went on. Mm-hmm. And I realized, you know, my question that I had asked, because that's what really our training in the process was, you ask a question, and then you listen. You really listen, and you can get answers, obviously, from your intuition and mm. guides and angels and goodness knows what, and this whole slab of information about who was the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Hmm. I said, okay, let's accept that mythic situation. We've got the first two humans, whether or not they were the first two humans, it doesn't matter. And then we had this talking snake. Hmm. What, oh, oh, what's that doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's absurd. For 2,000 years, people have peddled the story. Hmm. What is a talking snake? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I, I, I found out what the talking state was all about, and uh, that what the Heliax basically is, is an extraterrestrial entity that arrives here. Uh, and this is, I, I should say, a myth. I, I, I'm not saying this is, this is what happened or true, but it's a, a convenient myth for the rebel, for the outsider, mm. for the one who knows as opposed to the one who has to believe. Yeah, Different viewpoints. Another thing you uh, seem to have developed an interest in is uh, dolphins and extraterrestrials. I'm wondering if you could uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, your work with dolphins and extraterrestrials. <laughs> yes, um, I'd just been coming out of my period of being a businessman in New York, and I happened to see a couple of short films by biologists. And in one of them, I could clearly see that there was an example of dolphin telepathy. Now, it wasn't commented on. I went go through the things that I write about in one of my books. It wasn't commented on by the people in the boat, but it was very clear that that what was going on. Hmm. So I thought, my goodness, that's very interesting. I'd like to go and look into this a bit more. Within a day or two, some friends in Florida called my girlfriend. Would we like to come and stay with them? The dolphins were jumping. I had not much interest in dolphins before then. Went down to Florida, meditated on the beach, Felt the uh, presence of dolphins open my eyes, and there was a, a, a group of dolphins just swimming offshore. So I went in, plunged in, and then for the next 10 days, basically, was put through a whole series of experiences and experiments by the dolphins. You know, what is human anger? You know, I had some specific questions for the dolphins, too. You know, how do you, how do you pass information from generation to generation? Do you store information? You know, and they showed me how they stored information holographically by pinging hmm. shells, for instance, with a particular tone in which they stored information in the shell. The shell would then grow, but the information would be retained, and another dolphin could come along, ping it with the same frequency, and get the image back that the previous dolphin had imprinted in the shell. So they were showing me all sorts of things. Now, on the last day, I, one of my questions was, okay, you know, we know that extraterrestrials come and go uh, on the planet. Um, they come and go in the oceans. What do you make of them? And on the last day, 
there were uh, we had this very very um, clear extraterrestrial lights in the sky kind of thing, hmm. which lasted 20 minutes. But within a week, back in New York, we saw a literal flying saucer flying over. You're basically flying saucer flying over New York, and then had a whole experience with a little boy who wandered up, who's clearly some kind of telepathic mouthpiece for the guys in the ship because he was saying things we haven't seen. But it was, we haven't seen an image of this planet for 10,000 years. Mm. Things like that. I mean, outlandish things, but they yeah. all made sense. He told me about the system of politics in this area of the universe, something called Anthesis, which is one person, uh, one vote way of dealing with things. I mean, it was quite an extraordinary episode. How long ago was this? Sorry, how many sort of years? This was 81. All oh, right, okay. And that, that then uh, another situation opened up with a... Uh, a, a young trans medium in um, in uh, Toronto. Um, because angels had been made real to me in my death, near death experience, I had become interested in the angelic reality. So when I heard about this lad uh, who was um, channeling angels, I went and uh, you know spent uh, a couple of weeks with him and got a whole lot of very interesting angelic information. So it was, in a sense, it was like the dolphins led to the extraterrestrials led me, and then led me to the angels. Mm. And basically, you know, that's really where I have been working for the last 20 years. And you've and actually released... Both, go on, sorry, you've, you've released a book called Ask Your Angels, haven't you, which I assume is related to that, what you just yes. mentioned. Yeah. Yes. I wrote that with a couple of other people back in the 90s uh, as a manual for contacting your uh, companion angels, your guardian angels, mm. which is one of the things that the angels up in Toronto had told us everybody can do. Mm. I didn't have to rely on somebody else channeling. I could do it. So I took it very seriously, and I spent two, basically two years perfecting that particular, uh, that particular tool. Is that, is that in any way similar to, say, uh, the John D. Enochian system of... Uh contacting angels or is this a completely different system this was a system essentially i guess shown by the angels i, I can't speak for d and uh, and uh, whatever his name was kelly um, yeah. kelly that's right uh it, it seemed a bit complicated to me and also <laughs> the way that crowley dealt with it seemed to be a little more complicated than is necessary because what what is real is that the angels basically want to talk to us this is a very key time in not only our evolution, but their evolution as well. And it, it, it seems to be extremely important that mm. we have open communication with entities that know about us, but also know about what our plans, what our deep soul plans were and are. So um, it's a question like being in the right place at the right time. How does one do that? Mm. Well, one does it by being in contact with one's angel. Yeah. And, um, I mean... Um... How was this bit received? Ask your angels. I mean, is this like a obviously? I mean, like I said, what I was saying earlier, there's a this Enochian system, and that always seems to be very popular with the magical community. Um, how did this book go down? I guess with that community in mind. I'm not sure how it went down with the occult community because mm. I think they they might have seen it as being a little more simplistic. Um, when you're focused on one thing in your life, you tend to try and complicate it as much as possible in mm. order to validate your interest in it. Yes, yeah, angels yeah. actually are terribly easy to contact because when people contact their angels, the first thing they really say is, "Oh, oh, oh, is is that it?" 
but I know that. I know that voice. You know, that sort of thing. Hmm. I, I know that all my life. Yeah. So it's, it's a sense of, of, of familiarity. Mm. And one doesn't have to go through all this jiggery-pokery and sex magic and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, um, fun, <laughs> are you uh, working on any new projects you'd like to talk about? Or uh, I have a book, um, the most recent book in that the, the little trilogy there, the Dolphins, E.T.s and Angels, was the first of the, the, the books. And the second was Adventures Among Spiritual Intelligences which really takes the information in the first book and then works with it. And I travel all over the world, basically, mm. working with shamans and various different uh, communities, uh, applying the kind of information that I got in the first book. And then the third book, which I've just finished, I try and write one of these books every 10 years. Mm. Uh, it's called Writing Angels, and that's just been accepted by Inner Traditions, which is the, the big spiritual publishing. Oh, so that should be coming out next year. And obviously you've just uh, recently... Um uh, had a book about the Process Church released through Feral uh, House. Uh, right. How's that actually? How did that go down? I imagine that sold quite well. <laughs> uh, yes, it's well. You know, it's becoming a cult book about cults. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's yeah, it's bubbling along. I mean, it, it, this is not an easy time to sell books. No, uh, people are really kind of you know pulled in as probably. You know, but I mean, the internet also has opened a lot of things up. Mm. Ask Your Angels did very well, is doing very well. I mean, I think it's you know, three quarters of a million sold or something like oh, that. Wow, that's good. Yeah. 10 or 11 languages. So it's, um, it's out there. Good, good. And it's still maintained. It's basically the best manual if you want to learn how to communicate with your angels. It's the best manual out there to do it. Excellent. Well, Timothy, thanks a lot for giving us some of your time. I really appreciate it. Real pleasure, Ken. Thank you so yeah, much thank for you. being interested in
Okay, and we're back. Uh, thanks to Daddy Tank for another great MySpace Heroes. I think uh, Daddy Tank's going to have an announcement soon on the site for another project he's working on. So uh, keep an eye out for that at sittingnow.co.uk. And so, what, uh, what did you think about the interview, uh, Sam? Did you enjoy it? Or? Yeah, no, very enjoyable. Um, yeah, thanks again to Timothy Wiley for doing that. It was really, really good. So yeah, I th- what I thought was really interesting was I think we got an inside perspective rather than a kind of mythology perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, it? definitely. I think one thing um, that uh, hasn't been before this book, particularly before this book came out, is that a lot of the members of the Protest Church, and particularly like people like Robert Grimstone, have had have sort of an air of mystery about them. And there's been a lot of books written. Uh, with sort of tenuous serial killer links that are not necessarily true. And I picked up, a re- like I remember somebody buy- buying me a book from the pound shop about black magic killers and it had a big thing in it about the process church. And the sort of reality is yeah. totally different, really. And it's often the case, we were saying this earlier, right? it's often the case with uh, these groups that the truth behind the things are often, you know, they're, they're quite disappointed to some people that really get into the mythology of these things. But I, still, I thought it was a... Uh, a really good interview. I enjoyed. Uh, I enjoyed uh, Timothy's transparency. I like the fact that he didn't really sort of bow away from any questions, and he's just fairly straight with us. So that was really good. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So we're going to actually be back next week with uh, Carol Poke Runyon. Uh, he's from the OTA, a magical order in California, and uh, yeah, they've, he's done some really interesting work, and we're really looking forward to talking to him. So yeah, we'll see you next week. If you want to get in contact with me, my email address is ken at sittingnow.co.uk. Uh, you can obviously check out our website, which is sittingnow.co.uk, and check out the stories and music reviews and stuff there. Uh, on Twitter, it's at sittingnow, and MySpace, it's forward slash sittingnow. It gets really boring to say this every week, <laughs> or every time. Uh, but anyway, yeah, uh, we'll see you next time, and thanks for listening.